Hello, you glorious denizens of Awesome Town. It's Allison Dixon back again to briefly lift your spirits and perhaps this week ignite a little of your disgust with another episode of Ding Dong Ditch, the easy to swallow capsule version of the gigantic horse pill that is Ding Dong Darkness Time. But first, I want to send a shout out to my co-worker and local arch nemesis, John, who told me the other day that my Ding Dong Ditch episodes are getting pretty weird. Well, I'm afraid this episode isn't going to divest you of that notion, my fiendish colleague. That said, I like to think that you and anyone else listening to this are all here for one very important reason. You're all a bunch of flippin' weirdos, just like me. Now, let's talk about cannibalism. What do you do when you have a headache? I bet you have a ritual. Maybe you drink water, turn down the lights, put on some soothing white noise, or pop a dose of your favorite over-the-counter pain reliever. What are you, team acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or naproxen? Or maybe you're old school and reach for the aspirin or goodies headache powder. Personally, I think Advil should be a sponsor of this show given how much I rely on it, but when my head is really splitting, Excedrin is my savior. Again, not a sponsor. Yet. Or maybe you go the more naturalistic route. Herbs, teas, essential oils, supplements, acupuncture, Reiki. There are endless recommendations out there for how to deal with headaches without having to resort to medication, and everybody swears by something. But today in the 21st century, you're not likely to find a single person suggesting a pill or tincture made from the ground-up skull of a corpse. You'd have to go back a few centuries for that, and my friends, crushed-up skull powder doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on all the ways humans across the globe all throughout history have used dead bodies medicinally for almost every ailment one can think of. But why would people do this? Well, It's honestly kind of like something out of a fantasy role-playing game, right? Slay the creature, eat some part of it, gain that part's most vital attribute. This was more or less the same basic understanding people had, or thought they had, about the way the human body and medicine worked. So, for instance, if you had a headache, then it seemed natural enough to consume some part of a corpse's head. If you had a blood disorder, then you might perhaps consume some blood. During the days of the Black Plagues, some people thought they might prevent an infection if they consumed some of the pus from people's plague buboes. You can imagine how well that worked out for them, and how sick I feel even thinking about it. Back in the late 1600s, King Charles II of Spain had a special tincture for his epileptic seizures called King's Drops, which was basically alcohol with a human skull soaking in it. But honestly, that dude had way worse problems. He was so severely inbred, he could barely eat, speak, or walk, which makes the cannibalism seem almost an afterthought. And given he died in his 30s, I'm not sure the skull cocktail helped him much. Actually, the Spanish Habsburgs and their extreme inbreeding deserve their very own episode. So watch this space. It's coming. 
Additionally, a big part of medical health throughout the centuries was that of spirit, as people believe it linked the body with the soul. Therefore, by consuming part of a human body, you were taking on part of that person's spirit and gaining their strength and vitality. Most often, this was done by consuming the corpse's blood, as it was considered the carrier of the soul. Roman soldiers often consumed the blood of fallen gladiators in order to inherit the life and strength of the young male fighters. According to the Smithsonian Magazine article that is a main source for this episode, Leonardo da Vinci himself once said, We preserve our life with the death of others, and a dead thing, and since it life remains, which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. So you know we can probably go ahead and add him to the Cannibal Club. In Germanic countries of the 16th century, physicians were big believers in the curative powers of human blood, but it wasn't always easy to get it fresh and few seemed interested in taking it from live people. Come on now, we may be cannibals, but we ain't no vampires. And maybe I'm talking like I'm from Texas instead of Germany, but you know, just go with it. So a lot of folks would attend local executions for the express purpose of getting fresh blood harvested by the executioner. And in addition to blood, human fat was also a hot commodity for both the treatment of wounds and gout when rubbed into the skin. It rubs the lotion on its skin. Hmm, interesting. It was also used to make thieves candles, which were called as such due to the thinking that when a thief carried one of these candles into a place he intended to rob, he would either be cloaked from detection or any observers would be paralyzed and unable to act. That belief actually was prevalent until the late 1800s. In fact, while the human fat trade was booming back in the 17th century, as recently as 2008, a Beverly Hills doctor was discovered to be using fat from liposuction patients to develop biodiesel for his SUV. If that isn't the most California thing you've ever heard of that didn't involve an avocado, I don't know what is. Also in 2009, several Peruvian gang members were arrested in Lima for murdering peasants and draining them of fat from their thighs and thorax. Police recovered several bottles of the stuff upon making the arrests. Apparently, the gang was exporting it to Europe for use as a wrinkle cream. And the stuff doesn't come cheap. The Guardian who reported this said the going street value for a gallon of human fat can fetch upwards of 36,000 pounds. So much for thinking this kind of thing was relegated to soap making and fight club, am I right? Though it's good to know that Tyler Durden was onto something when robbing the liposuction clinic, no murder required. It should be noted though that while all Europeans were busy eating corpses for medicine, they had no trouble whatsoever casting aspersions on the native tribes of the Americas for their quote-unquote barbaric cannibalism, nor did that stop them from throwing shade at the Catholics for their Holy Communion ritual. Ah, hypocrisy, another affliction for which eating people doesn't seem to be much of a cure. But enough of all that, you're probably saying right now, the title of this show promised mummies. So where are the frickin' mummies? Well, plot twist, they've been part of this whole corpse-eating thing all along. My first encounter with this topic actually came during my research for our season one episode called Shadowy Paintings. That's episode four if you want to go back and listen to it. 
In order to keep the episode from running too long, I had to cut out the segment I intended to do on the paint pigment known as Mummy Brown, which is as literal as it sounds because it was made largely from the crushed up remains of Egyptian mummies and their mummified felines. In the 16th and 17th centuries, this pigment was so popular that its demand began to outstrip the availability of Egyptian mummies. So paint makers took to manufacturing their own mummies from the bodies of slaves and executed criminals. By the 19th century, Word started getting out that this paint's color wasn't merely meant to evoke the shade of a mummy, but that it contained the actual remains, and its popularity quickly plummeted. One artist, Edward Byrne Jones, ceremonially buried his mummy brown paint in his garden when he learned it contained actual corpse remains. By the start of the 20th century, production of the pigment had all but ceased. Modern versions of the paint bearing the name Mummy Brown contain no ground-up mummies, purportedly. But that was only the start of the research rabbit hole that led to the episode you're hopefully still listening to right now. Why were people so crazy for mummies? Actually, perhaps I shouldn't be using the past tense. People are still crazy for mummies. I actually attended a mummies exhibit at a natural history museum in Cincinnati back around 2016 or so. It was equal parts fascinating and upsetting. And all the way home, my family and I wondered if we did the right thing by going. Were these mummies ethically sourced, as a hipster might ask, at a farm-to-table restaurant? On the one hand, the study of these remains offers vital understanding about the way people lived. On the other hand, it feels more than a little exploitive because you can be sure that none of the dead people featured in that exhibit signed a release before their deaths that they gave permission for folks centuries later to display them in a glass case for people to gawk at. I'll have more to say on this in a few minutes, but I can at least guarantee we didn't actually eat any of the mummies, so at least we have that going for us. For that, you'd need to visit your local apothecary from any point starting in the 12th century, which is around the time mummies became a genuine curiosity. The practice of mummification had begun to die out largely by then, and the fascination was real. Looking at these perfectly preserved bodies, it's easy to confer some idea of eternal life with them, which made them seem almost magical to people discovering this for the first time. And from there, with the belief in mind that one could take on the spirit of a person they've in some part consumed, mummies were a hot ticket item. Up until around the 1800s or so, nearly every practitioner at an apothecary had a jar of mummia on the shelf. However, that did not necessarily mean they had ground up mummies in that jar. The etymological study of mummia and mummy is a bit confusing, it's also a hugely important part of why human beings proceeded to chow down on pharaohs and their subordinates for a few hundred years. So bear with me for a moment while I do a very quick and dirty breakdown of all this. And if I happen to get it wrong, please don't hesitate to let me know. I did my very best to bring you the facts as clearly as I could. So Mamiya was derived from the Arabic word meaning bitumen. Bitumen is another word for something all of us who've ever been on a modern road are familiar with, and that's asphalt or pitch. It's a sticky, semi-solid form of petroleum that can either be manufactured, as it often is today, or found in natural deposits all over the earth. 
It was used a lot for waterproofing, sealing between bricks, and a lot of the same things we use it for today. But it could also be used medicinally, which was part of the original definition of mamia. Essentially, it meant a bituminous substance used medicinally. This included the process of preserving dead bodies, which we know as mummification. But then medieval Latin scholars came around and mistranslated the Arabic word, taking it basically to mean the substance found inside embalmed corpses, as opposed to say the substance used to embalm them and do a whole bunch of other things. It was a little like saying you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but not with just any jelly. You want the jelly from inside a jelly donut, and that's the only place jelly comes from. I hope that makes sense, but leave it up to me to bring up actual good food at a time like this. Thus, in the 12th century, a very healthy, please note the extreme irony I'm using with that word, trade opened between Egypt and Europe, where first they were shipping out the scraped, sticky black insides of the mummies, and then later just started sending out the whole damn bodies. Members of royalty were ensured that they were only receiving the mummy powder of pharaohs, which I guess meant everyone else got peasant mummies. And really, that wasn't too far from the truth, as eventually, as with the paint, demand for mummy powder started to outstrip the supply of Egyptian mummies, and purveyors took to using their own mummies made from whatever bodies they could get their hands on. Prisoners, executed people, other unclaimed corpses, all became the next mummy powder. And you might be wondering what all the doctors are thinking at this time. Is there a consensus or not? Well, while a number of doctors during the heyday of corpse medicine weren't fans of the practice, it was largely the prevalence of counterfeit mummies that turned them off. This quote comes from French royal surgeon Ambois Paré in 1585. We are compelled both foolishly and cruelly to devour the mangled and putrid particles of the carcasses of the basest people of Egypt, or such as are hanged. I guess this is to say, if only the ground-up matter of true ancient Egyptians was used, this medicine might just work. You can't see me right now, but I'm giving my best sure-jan grin to all of that. Anyway... During the Renaissance and ensuing enlightenment, folks got a little bit smarter and realized their mistranslation of Mamiya ended up costing the misuse of countless dead bodies and doctors largely stopped prescribing the stuff. That said, these things don't die out fast. Medicines derived from ancient mummy powder were still found in pharmaceutical catalogs as recently as the 1920s. And the decline in mummies as medicine didn't stop artists from using mummified remains to make the aforementioned mummy brown paint. Enlightenment is a highly incremental process, but it seems the 20th century brought with it some sort of collective realization about how we should be treating these particular corpses. That was aided along by the mummy's curse, the infamous events that followed the excavation of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. But that, too, will have to wait for its own episode. I wish that could be the end of the horrific exploitation of Egyptian mummies, but the Victorians had their own horrific dalliances with them. By the time the mid-1800s rolled around, mummies went from a cure-all to a source of thrill-seeking. 
Street vendors in Cairo used to sell whole mummies to tourists who could then bring them back home to be the centerpiece of a raucous unwrapping party. That's right, a mummy unwrapping party. Imagine slapping a brand new or old mummy on your dining room table, inviting several of your closest friends and acquaintances over, maybe make it a BYOB kind of thing since I'm kind of sure the corpse didn't come cheap. Can you even imagine the shipping costs alone? Then you start drinking and slowly unwrapping the corpse. Maybe appetizers are being passed around. And because the drink was likely flowing heavily by the time it was fully disrobed, I'll leave it to your imagination what the party goers probably did with it. But not all of these mummy unwrappings were done at private bacchanalian soirees. Noted surgeon of the time Thomas Pettigrew performed many of these unwrappings in medical schools, theaters, and other public venues in the hope of promoting medical knowledge. Oddly enough, these ventures, combined with the increased understanding of human anatomy and medicine, eventually saw this practice fall by the wayside. That isn't the only reason, however, people largely stopped mistreating mummies, which is not at all to say that we still don't have a hugely thriving black market in antiquities, which also includes mummy smuggling, but more on that in a moment. Social mores also changed. I want to quote one prominent researcher on this topic, Richard Sugg, PhD. I thought this was really insightful. What can we learn from the surprisingly neglected history of corpse medicine? We can reasonably infer, for one thing, that it was not merely scientific evidence that finally banished mummy from the mainstream medical practice. It seems to have fallen victim, in part, to a more general ideology of progress and enlightenment, as well as to a new kind of gentility in which the human body, living or dead, far more easily provoked disgust. I found that incredibly interesting. As the taboos around death and corpses prevailed into the 20th century, coinciding with the explosive growth of the corporate funeral industry, we stopped seeing mummies less as objects and more as people. But at the same time, we also became far less comfortable being in the company of the dead, period. We rode a social slingshot from one extreme to the other. Furthermore, it cannot be overstated that so many of these practices are rooted deeply in classism and xenophobia. As I've said before, so many of the mummies we've seen both online and in person came from Egypt and other parts of West Asia where the practice was more common. We, and I mean the royal we, as in we white European folks, gleefully bought, traded, ground up into powder, ate, painted with, and drunkenly unwrapped countless thousands of these people for centuries. If your toad's cool with that, and also happen to be of white European descent, imagine an invading force coming into your country and unearthing the tombs of your kings, queens, founding fathers, war heroes, politicians, artists, and beloved pets and family members from the various cathedrals, crypts, and cemeteries in which they've been interred. Imagine those people then selling those corpses for trade, making medicines and art out of them and displaying them in museums. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because it simply doesn't happen. When we have the opportunity to observe the desiccated corpses of antiquity, it's almost always that of a brown person from a culture we don't share. While collectively as a species, we might place more reverence on the treatment of the dead, it's easier to depersonalize the corpse when they're either lower on the social ladder or from a faraway land and time. 
But what's the right answer here? We find ourselves at the center of a constant ethical and moral tug of war. So much of what we know about the human body and mind in past societies came at the behest of people who had no struggle with things like informed consent and respect for the dead. And a lot of times we don't know where to place certain boundaries until we've passed a point of no return, which means a lot of people have to suffer and die or have their remains abused and exploited until we've learned that, hey, Maybe we shouldn't have been doing that. Today, we might not be grinding up mummified corpses for treating our headaches and libido problems, but we're still taking advantage of other cultures, appropriating some of their practices based only on a kiddie pool level of intellectual depth and inviting ourselves to places we aren't welcome. I like to think we're getting better at understanding the difference between sharing and taking. But then again, my study of history only proves the human condition to be nothing if not resilient to change. Today, the stolen antiquities trade is still very big money. A combination of the Arab Spring of the 20 teens and other conflicts in Egypt and other parts of North Africa and the Middle East led to mass looting of various ancient artifact sites. In fact, Facebook has played a huge role in the matter as people set up private group pages aimed at those looking for ways to do their own illegal excavations. The black market trade of stolen antiquities ranges in the billions of dollars. One recently discovered cache of stolen Egypt artifacts was worth at least $3 billion American. So maybe we're not nearly done exploiting and profiting from the relics of our ancient past, nor are we nearly done with nonsense bonkers wellness cures, if our escapades through our most recent pandemic have been any indication. But at least when it comes to eating and making paint out of mummies, we've got that part taken care of. Except for that time in 2018 when 25,000 people signed a petition to allow someone to drink the fluid from the bottom of an unearthed sarcophagus in Alexandria. But I digress. I hope you like this one, folks. It's been a really busy couple of months here. In addition to prepping for season three of this show, I've been hard at work on finishing my next book, which is my other, you know, stock and trade for people who have been listening to this show at all or who know me already. It's been a bit of work trying to juggle that with the fact that I also work a regular day job. Season three might have to come a few weeks later than I intended, but it is coming. I can promise you that. And I can always find the time to visit you all with a weekly ditch episode to keep you enthralled. If you have any questions, if you want to drop me a line with a show idea, uh, reach out to me at ddarknesstime at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter under the same handle, ddarknesstime. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you over on iTunes. Drop me a review, uh, drop me a rating, let people know about the show. I really just love hearing from people that are enjoying all of these episodes and it's just become such a pleasure to visit you guys every week because after all, somebody's got to keep it weird around here. So take care of yourselves in the meantime, don't do cannibalism and be good, you little ding dongs.